I want you to come on a tour with me. Uh, we're not physically leaving right now, no. We are going to take this tour in our mind, our mind's eye. Don't worry, I have not become a hippie in the past week. If you are a hippie, that's okay. God loves you. Uh, I am not one. Here we go. We're going to take a tour. So we're imagining we walk out the doors, go out the front doors, we get in our car, and then we turn left onto Old Oak. We turn left on the Falls. We turn right onto Pearl. I like going this way better from here. Uh, and then we turn left to 71. We're going to go north. 71 north. We're going to take it, I looked it up, 13 miles. 13 miles north, as we're driving north, you're going to see all the corporation changes limits. I'll go it's like Cleveland, Brooklyn, Cleveland, Brooklyn, Cleveland, Brooklyn. Have you ever noticed that on the right? We're going to keep on 71 over the inner belt, continue on to I-90, and then we're going to get off at 173B. Anybody know? Chester, Chester Avenue. We'll take Chester Avenue for a little bit until we run into University Circle. We're going to the art museum. So for all the, just as, this is a sidebar, uh, for all the outside naysayers of Cleveland, right, across the country, those who've never been here, they haven't seen what I would argue is the jewel of Cleveland, the Cleveland Museum of Art. Now, you may not agree with me, but I think so. And the art museum finds its way into my sermons every now and then. So we're going to go to the art museum, we're going to park, hopefully we carpooled, or else, you know, we're taking up a whole floor on the parking garage. But nonetheless, we go through the front desk, and we spill out onto the atrium. It's a really cool place. Huge room, very bright, not, lots of natural lights, a little bit of greenery, and kind of a European-style cafe. It's a very cool place. And we're going to do some exploring. We'll start upstairs. So you go up the escalator upstairs, and there's this balcony and so up the escalator, I think you turn right and then right again, it's to the other side. Now we are feeling adventurous. We're feeling like we want to fit in with the artsy crowd. So where do we start? We're going to be bold and start in the contemporary section, the contemporary section of arts. And as we walk in, from a distance, we, we happen upon a piece that just looks like a blank canvas. And... It's really big. It's six feet wide, roughly six feet tall. And you think maybe this is just a museum hosting an artist, and she is going to paint before all the museum pa patrons for us to be behold. But so we inch closer. Just going to check it out. And we find there's that little plaque by, that's by all the paintings. And so this must be a finished painting then. So we inch closer, and... We find that this painting, it looks like a faded piece of graph paper. Do you remember the, the geometry class, the graph paper, and the, the little vertical lines and the horizontal lines and even squares? So imagine if you took one of those pieces of paper and left it out for 15 years. That's what this painting looks like. And so this is art. And we say, well, we don't really get it. Uh, so maybe the explanation will help. We'll check out, we'll read the description. Maybe that will help us connect. The piece is called The City. It was painted by Agnes Martin, I believe, in 1966. And you can look this up on the museum's website, or uh, this description. Uh, the explanation says this. You know, we're exploring, we're trying to connect. It says, in this painting, 
Martin uses a measured system of horizontal and vertical blue lines to create a rectangular grid over a warm white, faintly modulated surface. Purified of all non-essential elements, the painting demonstrates Martin's use of a minimalist vocabulary combined with emotional expressionism. She enriched the grid with subtle variations of light and pattern, texture and touch. Within these limited compositional elements, Martin achieves a quiet, private poetry. I don't know why anyone writes like that. <laughs> now, as much as we have tried to fit in, I don't know about you, but so far, it's not working. Maybe it's time to head to the medieval armor section. That's the coolest part. Now, we know that this painting is supposed to do something for us. We're supposed to connect with it in some way, but it's not. And we gave it a chance, didn't we? We read the explanation, see if that helped. But still, we kind of walk away indifferent, confused. Now, sometimes the explanation makes sense of something. I mean, that's what an explanation is supposed to do, explain. But sometimes, even with an explanation or even with more facts, that connection still not quite there. Let's go on another tour. Don't worry, this one won't be as long. This time it's 2,000 years ago, and it's 6,000 miles away. Not exactly an easy trip up 71. We come upon two men walking out of the city of Jerusalem. They've been followers of Jesus of Nazareth. But they're walking away from Jerusalem discouraged by the events of Easter weekend. These guys have heard the basic facts of what has happened, that Jesus was crucified, buried, and now his tomb is empty. They looked at Jesus the way we might look at abstract art. They still don't get it, even after hearing some explanation. Now, in a moment, we'll read a portion of Luke chapter 24, and there we see something of the nature of what true faith is. And we see the Lord's kindness to be patient with us and bring about that faith in our hearts. Now, as we follow on these men on the road to Emmaus, we also follow them on their road to faith in Christ. And the main thing I think we should take away from this passage from Luke 24 is that we need more than the facts of Easter. We need to embrace the face of Easter. We need more than the facts of Easter. We need to embrace the face of Easter. I want you, we can listen for that main point, that main takeaway as we read Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 35. If you're looking at a Bible that looks like this, you'll find it on page 885. Uh, in, if you're looking at your own Bible, this is in the New Testament. It's after the Gospel of Mark and before the Gospel of John. Uh, just a heads up. When I say 24, 13 to 35, 24 is the chapter number. So that'd be the big, bold number on the page. And then 13 to 35, those are the verse numbers. Those are the little numbers that come after the chapter numbers. Just don't want to take it for granted. Everybody has different levels of, of aware, uh, familiarity with the Bible. So this is kind of what we do every week here at Old Oak Bible Church. We take a portion of God's word, we read it, try to explain it, and then apply it to our lives with God's help and hold up Christ in it, in each passage. So let's read Luke 24, beginning at verse 13. 
That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some, of our, some women from our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he banished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Here's God's word. Well, it's here in Luke 24 that Jesus appears to disappointed and doubting disciples. And in his kindness, Christ leads them beyond the facts that they know and touches their hearts. Notice all that the Lord Jesus does for these men here. He draws them out. He lifts up their drooping hands. He roots them in the truth. He opens their eyes and he warms their hearts. Friends, here's the good news. God is still in that same business of doing all of that, of doing what Christ did for these men here. So we'll follow these two men's journey to faith that happened on the road to Emmaus in three different parts. I'm going to glance at the whole passage here. The first part's from verses 13 to 24. There we see that these disciples' eyes are closed We kind of see them on their own. Jesus is yet to work. And then the second part comes in verses 25 to 27. There we see Jesus speaks. He's beginning to work in them. And the last part, verses 28 to 35, see these men's eyes are opened. And Christ finishes his work in them. 
So first part of the journey. We get to see what these two men know just on their own. Now Jesus shows up, but they didn't recognize him. In fact, here it says they were kept from recognizing him. Now we have to say that there was something different about Jesus when he rose from the dead. Still the same person, but slightly different. But also it says they were kept from recognizing him. So perhaps this is God preventing them from recognizing Christ until they realize what Christ had actually come to do, until they understand that. Then their eyes are opened. So anyway, uh, they're on the road, and they meet Jesus. They don't know who Jesus is, and Jesus lets them talk for a little while. You see a couple different times that Jesus asks them questions, drawing them out. Verse 17, what are you guys talking about? Verse 19, what things? What things going on? Now, if you read any of the gospel accounts, especially as we've been reading Mark uh, in these last few months, we see Jesus constantly doing this, drawing out people to see where they're at so that he can get them to where they should be. It's a good pattern for us. Questions to see where people are at so that we can help them get to where they need to be in Christ. All right, first part of the journey, we get to see what these men know. And what do they know? What they know is something like answering questions to a survey, if you think about this. And we can do the same thing for people today. In fact, groups do this all the time. What do people know? Random Joe Schmo on the street, what does he know about Jesus? So one poll done by the Barna Group back in 2015, they're trying to figure this out, something similar to what's going on here on the road to Emmaus. What people know about Jesus? So one Barna Group poll from 2015 found that 92% of American adults believe that Jesus was a real person who actually lived. 92%. Now that's a pretty ground floor level belief, but it's hard to move on if we don't agree on that, that Jesus was actually real. But beyond that ground floor fact, There's not much consensus anywhere else. The same poll asked people if they believed that Jesus was God or a religious leader. They asked if they believed that Jesus was sinless or has sins like everyone else. They asked if they've made a commitment to Jesus Christ that's important to them still today or if they haven't. Among those who have made that commitment, they they asked them what they believe will happen to them after they die and why. Now, there's a sizable portion that answered positively those questions, that gave good answers to those questions that came after the ground floor. Was Jesus real? But there's anything but a consensus. There's anything but everyone having the same answer. So, friends, there is a point. What this poll shows us is that there's a high awareness of Jesus in America. A lot of people know who he is. But awareness doesn't always lead to where the Lord would have us. I think the same works here for the two men on the road to Emmaus. In response to Jesus drawing out of them what they knew, the one who spoke up is Cleopas. And they know a lot about Jesus. But you see, did you you catch verse 18? My man Cleopas gets straight sassy with the Lord himself. 
We're talking about for 2,000 years, people have read this, how Cleopas told Jesus basically that he's ignorant. Have you not heard what has happened? Are you the only one? No, Jesus didn't hear about it because he's the one who lived it. But Jesus is so kind, so patient with Cleopas. He allows him to keep going. It just strikes me always in reading the Gospels, reading Jesus' life. He took criticism from people. He was so approachable that people felt free to come up in his face. Like some people just call them straight up Satan. How many of us have bosses who we would never even say one negative thing about? Here's the Lord himself. People have this freedom to come up to him and criticize him like this. But let's notice for a moment the facts that Cleopas knew had happened about Jesus. So, so what, what are his survey answers? Okay, He starts off in verse 19. Cleopas and this other guy talking, he's not named, talking first about Jesus' ministry. They know Jesus spoke on behalf of God himself, you know, a prophet. He knows that Jesus' teaching and miracles are undeniable. They weren't rumors that he did them. Rather, he did them before witnesses. His ministry had integrity for all to see. He knows something of Jesus' death, the main thing being that his death was unjust and done by those who should have known better. He goes even further in for what he knew about Jesus. He knew that, he was, that Jesus was one who was capable of saving Israel. He also knew that Jesus was capable of rising from the dead. It, it seems like he had some kind of expectation for it. Like it's now the third day since these things have happened. And he's even heard little murmurs about how it might have happened. So all in all, we think of these two men on the road to Emmaus, their first part of their journey, Jesus just lets them talk. If they responded to that Barna Group survey today, I bet you they would do pretty well. I bet you they would do pretty well. Here we see an awareness, a high awareness of Jesus. Know a lot of facts, plenty of good and true facts. But if their view of Jesus is like a Ziploc bag, let's say, I don't know what you're putting in it, the trail mix, uh, the healthy way to eat M&Ms. Uh, if you're putting trail mix in a Ziploc bag and you close it, these men close the Ziploc bag of their view of Jesus before getting all the air out of it. Now we're going to let Jesus do the heavy lifting of opening the Ziploc bag and getting the air out. But for now, we can already see just some holes and some weaknesses of these two men's view of Christ. Just look at it a little bit closer. Did you notice the verb tense they used to describe Jesus? Now, how do they talk about him? We see it right away, verse 19. It says, Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word. You skip down to verse 21. We had hoped. It's like these men had already given up. We can see another hole in their view of Christ, another weakness, not just in the verb tense that they use describing him, but even in their description of him in general. They call Jesus a prophet. Attaboy, Jesus. Is Jesus just a prophet? 
Oh, we've gone over this a lot in the Gospel of Mark. Is that really all they have to say? That Jesus is a prophet? Boy, Jesus' words and deeds showed claims much more than that. Show claims to be the Messiah, the coming King, the Savior, even equal with God Himself. And to them, He's a prophet. You search around a little bit more, you're going to find more holes and weaknesses in their view of Christ. It says that they had hoped He was the one to redeem Israel. Now, this wasn't an uncommon hope about Jesus in their day. The Jewish people wanted a champion to throw off the shackles of the Roman Empire, not a savior who would throw off the shackles of the bonds of sin. So in the first part of their journey, we find that these guys had plenty of facts about Jesus. Now, they read the description by the art museum, but they didn't recognize the face of the gospel. Friends, we read later in the New Testament that the book, book of James book of James says that even demons believe in God. Even demons believe good things about God and Christ. And yet they shudder. And yet they defy God. So what do we have to say at this point? Now, we can, do you have to say on one hand that there are enough facts about Jesus for us to believe? It's what we read earlier in the Gospel of John at the very end. It's like, I've written, you, I've written these things. I haven't written everything. I've written these things so that you would believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ. God has given us enough reasons to believe. Christianity isn't a matter of blind faith. There is reason involved. We have what, what we have here is the encapsulation of eyewitness accounts, the people who touched and saw and heard Jesus firsthand. What we have is the empty tomb itself. I mean, the resurrection would have been the easiest thing in the world to disprove. Just bring the body. What we have is the faith of the disciples. The 11, that, the 11 of them, besides Judas, who betrayed him, went to their graves, went to their deaths, being killed because they believed Jesus really rose from the dead. Eventually, if you know that's not true, you say, all right, don't kill me. I know that's not true. What we have is the spread of the church. What else explains it except for Jesus being risen from the dead? We have plenty of reasons to believe. And we have to say that here at this point of the journey for these two men. But we have to say something else at this point in the journey. We also have to say that knowing facts and having an awareness of Jesus is not enough. Facts may grab our attention. Facts may provide a foundation for faith, but they are useless unless they penetrate a heart. So answering positively to a survey about Jesus does not necessarily make you a Christian and does not necessarily mean you have genuine faith. I'll push it even a little further. Sitting in a church pew and nodding your head along with the sermon does not necessarily mean you're a Christian. The fruit of faith is the heart that embraces Jesus, not just agrees with facts about him. It goes from hoping that Jesus might be all that he's cracked up to be to trusting and embracing that Jesus is all he's cracked up to be, the one who saves us and delivers us from ourselves and the punishment we face for our sin before God. 
These men didn't need more facts. They needed their hearts to be opened to what was already there. And the tension that we hold is that in a real sense, this is their responsibility. But they can't do it without the Lord. So Jesus steps in, beginning in verse 25, the second, second part of the journey. Jesus speaks. This is where Jesus does the heavy lifting. This is where he's going to open up the Ziploc bag and get the air out of it. This is where he starts the work of opening these men's hearts to the facts of Easter so that they would embrace the face of Easter. Now, how does he start? He talks about them for a quick second. He says they are foolish. Just means that they haven't thought this through. They haven't understood as they should. A little clearly in the next spot, they say they are uh, slow to believe. So if the second stage of the journey is Jesus speaks, I think we could see two major parts to that speech. Verse 26 and verse 27. So the crux of that first part, the center of it, comes in a single word in verse 26. A single word. I wonder if you can guess what it is. Single word in verse 26. I'd argue that it's the word all. All. They haven't believed all that the prophets have written. It's a way to refer to the Bible. So you catch Jesus' standard here? He doesn't say, you should believe some of what the prophets have written. He doesn't even say you should believe most of what the prophets have has written. He says, not even. You should believe 99.99% of what the prophets have written. He says, you should believe all that the prophets have written. Their failure is that they didn't believe all that the prophets have written. So what he's doing is promoting a biblically comprehensive faith. Believing all the Bible, not just selecting some of its parts. In their case, they failed to believe what God had spoken about the work of the Messiah. About both parts of that work. About the Messiah's need to suffer for the sins of his people and for his elevation to glory after that suffering. Both sides of that work are in one person. They failed to believe that. And you can see the Bible describe a couple examples of where it describes that. Isaiah 53, Psalm 2. Suffering servant, glorious king, one person. But you know, we're talking about a biblically comprehensive faith. You know, believing all that the Bible says. Now people have stopped doing this, right? We've gotten past this error. No, no, that is sarcasm. <laughs> In the nearly 2,000 years since the completion of the biblical canon, that's all that's contained in this, group after group has been selective in what parts they believe. Even in recent months, a prominent pastor has advocated that Christians unhitch themselves from the Old Testament. Does this sound like Jesus is doing that here? Not at all. Even today, we have those who impose modern Western values onto the text of Scripture, making that the foundation, not the Bible itself. So we want to have the kind of biblically comprehensive faith that Jesus promotes here. Just boots on the ground, practical level, this is a big reason 
why we preach systematically through books of the Bible. It forces us not to be selective. It forces us not to cherry pick. It forces us to interact with the whole counsel of God. And so the consequence for these two men missing a part of Scripture is that they missed all of Christ. Failed to recognize who he really was. I think the crux of the the first part of what Jesus is saying, uh, there's another part to it. So there's like two parts in part one. We're like subpoints within subpoints again. I apologize. But you see, when Jesus speaks here in verse 26, he's a little like Darth Vader. No, there's nothing here that, that he doesn't need a breathing machine or uh, that he's on the dark side. I'm thinking one of Vader's most famous lines. I find your lack of faith disturbing. I'm not even going to try to imitate James Earl Jones. Jesus finds their lack of faith disturbing, or at least whatever faith that they have disturbing. Not just because it's not biblically comprehensive, but because it's not rooted in the Bible. I think that's what he's promoting also here more deeply. Look at what Jesus is doing in verse 26. In correcting the view of him that they just spewed out, when Jesus spoke, he promotes a biblically rooted faith. A biblically rooted faith. Friends, did you know everyone's a theologian? You might be saying, I don't even know what a theologian is. How can I be one? Well, everyone has some kinds of thoughts about God, who they think God is. Whatever you think about God, whether it's many thoughts or no thoughts, whether it's good thoughts or bad thoughts, you engage and participate in theology of determining who God is. And so what does Jesus do here? He brings up scriptures. And Jesus reminds us that everybody's a theologian, but not everybody is a good theologian. You see, we don't know or study God by working our way up to him. Remember they tried that at the Tower of Babel, and it did not work out so well. No, we know and study God because he came down to us through his word written, his word incarnate, taken on flesh in Christ. So we, if we are to know God, we can't speak about him. He must speak about himself, and that's what he's done in his word. So we have a biblically rooted faith. Now, before we get to the second half of what Jesus speaks to his disciples, this is just the first half, this is just verse 26, maybe we can make some halftime adjustments. We could be like Bill Belichick. As much as I don't like the guy, he makes really good halftime adjustments. I'll ask you a couple of questions, just where we are right now. If Jesus promotes a biblically comprehensive faith, Do you believe all that the prophets have said? Do you have the same view of the Bible as Jesus does? Shouldn't we listen to the opinion of the man who rose from the dead? So another question. If Jesus promotes a biblically rooted faith, then is your view of Jesus based on what you think or based on what the Bible says? Friends, don't bring the bad Christmas mindset over to Easter. Just like Christmas isn't whatever, whatever we want it to mean, neither is Easter whatever we want it to mean. 
No. Where we know Christ is the Bible, the written word of God. And by the way, this is what we strive to do in our statement of faith. We aren't striving to summarize our opinions on God. We are striving to summarize what God says about himself. So earlier we read a portion of our statement of faith that speaks of God the Son. All that the Bible says about God the Son. Well, not all of it, just a condensed summary of it. The most essential elements. You can read it. Go back in the bulletin. Read concerning God the Son. Summary of what the Bible says. A biblically rooted faith. So, halftime coming to an end. Second half starting. Notice in verse 26, just to remind you where we are. Jesus is speaking to men who couldn't see the face of Easter that was right in front of them. He begins to open their hearts to his death and resurrection. First, by saying that it's rooted in the scriptures. You can summarize verse 26. All that's happened to me is what God says would happen. And then the second half, verse verse 27, if his death and resurrection are rooted in the scriptures, then he goes on and says, all the scriptures are about me. Boy, that's a claim. So verse 27, Luke tells us that beginning with Moses and the prophets, just another way to speak of the Old Testament, that Jesus showed them everything that was about him. And by doing this, Jesus shows that he is a part of God's big plan to save his people. Namely, he's the fulfillment of that plan. He's the one who completes it. Now, what what is it that Jesus said to them? What parts of the Bible did he point out? Boy, I would have loved to listen on that Bible study. Talk about the greatest Bible study of all time. Well, we could speculate. Uh, J.C. Ryle, an old pastor, he's helpful. He he gives a a good list of things Jesus might have pointed out. Jesus could have said that he is the fulfillment of every sacrifice described in the Old Testament. Jesus could have said that he was the true deliverer, whom all the judges and deliverers of Israel were types. Jesus could have said that he was the prophet greater than Moses, the one described in Deuteronomy 18. Jesus could have said that he was the seed of the woman whom God promised to use to crush the serpent's head all the way back in Genesis 3. Jesus could have said that he was the seed of Abraham by which God would bless all the nations of the earth back in Genesis 12. Jesus could have said that he was the true scapegoat on the day of atonement, the high priest placing all the sins of Israel on that goat. Jesus could have said that he was the true bronze serpent lifted up in the wilderness when uh, serpents broke out among the people and they looked and lived. Jesus could have said that he is the true Passover lamb. The blood spread across the doorposts so that God's judgment passed over that house. Jesus could have said that he is the true high priest who goes between God and his people. It's the overall point. Verse 27, any part of it, all of it, all the Bible points to him. The Old Testament as a whole, its promises, its symbols, looks forward to what Jesus accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection. This is what these men needed to embrace, and this is what we must embrace as well. Jesus is the center. It's all about him. So we reflect on that for a moment. 
Friend, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, notice what you've stumbled upon. Here's the center of history. Here's the one who makes God fully known. Here's the one who completes God's big plan to bring us back to himself. You know, ever since the first of us has been around, our disobedience to God has placed us under his judgment and separated us from him. Jesus is the great reconciler, the central part of that plan to bring us back to God. Jesus obeyed God when we didn't. Jesus took the punishment from God for our sin. So the Bible is in large part just a story of God's big rescue mission. And in the person and work of Christ, we say, mission accomplished. This is a treasure in front of you right now. Believe in him. Turn from living for yourself and turn toward living for him. Confess your sin to God and Christ and ask Christ to pay for it and save you from it. Rest in him and follow him. Take this treasure and embrace it today. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if this is all about Jesus, if he's the center, uh, what about everything else in our lives? If he's the center of this, will you not be the center of everything else? You can think of many ways to apply this. And one of the ways principally is this affects how we read, study, and preach the Bible. We have to say that the Bible first isn't about us. It's about Christ. It's just revolutionary in our me-centered culture. The Bible isn't our handbook on marriage and finances. I mean, it, it speaks about those things, but that's not the main point. The Bible isn't the book where we are the heroes. It's the book where we're the villains, the criminals, the failures, the wimps. And friends, the good news is that Jesus is everything that we're not. The Bible isn't about us, it's about Christ. And that means every time we open this, we want to see him a little more clearly. Charles Spurgeon, famous preacher, I quote him very often, told this story to his students about an old minister and a young preacher. It says this, you remember the story of the old minister who heard a sermon by a young man. And he was asked by the preacher what he thought of it and was rather slow to answer. But at last he said, If I must tell you, I did not like it at all. There was no Christ in your sermon. No, answered the young man, because I did not see Christ It was in that text. Oh, said the old minister, but do you know that every little town and village and tiny hamlet in England that there is a road leading to London. Whenever I get a hold of a text, I say to myself, there is a road from here to Jesus Christ, and I mean to keep you on his track till I get to him. Well, said the young man, but suppose you are preaching from a text that says nothing about Christ. Well, then I will go over hedge and ditch, but I will get to him. Jesus is the center and key to the Bible, to heaven, to our lives. 
The centrality of Christ that Jesus himself describes here in Luke 24 tells us that Jesus is too great to be an Easter-only special. As followers of Christ in this world, we pursue having Christ-centered homes, Christ-centered work ethics, Christ-centered relationships. So we've been here a little while. Quickly, land the plane, finish the story. Last part of it, disciples' eyes are opened. Well, Jesus spoke to them, and then we see in verses 28 and 29 that he again draws them out. He gets them to plead with him to stick around, acting as if he was going farther. And friends, just God often works like this. He withholds so that we would seek him all the more. That's what happens here. So just for a minute, skip to the end of the story. Verse 34. Where do these guys end up as far as their attitude toward Christ? Probably have to say it's a pretty good place. The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. That's a change, isn't it? Yeah. Before they stood still, back in verse 17. Now they return, they run back to Jerusalem some seven miles away. Verse 33. Before they were discouraged, now they are rejoicing. So friends, back to the beginning. What, what makes the difference? It wasn't really more facts. No. They finally embraced the risen Christ who used the word about him to capture their hearts for him. After realizing it was Jesus who was with them, these men said, did not our hearts burn within us while he would talk to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Friends, like we said already, God is still in this business of opening eyes and capturing hearts. So today, we've all heard the word of Christ and God says that he gives faith through hearing this word. So you've heard it. Now embrace it and don't let go. Why is this such good news? Why is this worth embracing? That Jesus has risen from the dead means that his death actually accomplished what it claimed it would, he, it would accomplish. The payment and forgiveness of sin the destruction of death and the devil. You remember all those accomplishments we pondered last week from Hebrews. Jesus rising from the dead means that all those accomplishments are actually true. Jesus rising from the dead is joyous, is worth embracing because it tells us that we're going to be okay. In fact, friends, we'll be more than okay. We will be glorious. As the risen one promises us, we will be made like him. So let's return to the art museum. We know we've really encountered Christ. Not if we've heard some things about him, still kind of don't get it, learn some facts, and then walk away sort of indifferent. We know we've really encountered Christ when we've come into contact with him through his word and we change is when our hearts burn within us and we want to stay there forever. That's when we know. So let's keep following our Savior, our risen Savior. Let's pray.
Lord, we praise you that you are alive. And Lord, our hearts are yours. Take them. Seal them for your throne. Lead us to not just agree with facts about you, but to embrace you with our whole being. Lead us to do that afresh. Perhaps lead us to do that for the first time. You are worth rejoicing over. Because, Lord, our work of salvation is finished because of you. We pray in Jesus' name.